0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to World Christianity, a special series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the Global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. Faith in Flux, Pentecostalism and Mobility in Rural Mozambique, written by Devaka Primawardana and published by University of, of Pennsylvania Press in 2018, explores the ambiguities of religious change among a traditionally mobile people. It contests the widely assumed narrative of a worldwide Pentecostal explosion, doing so on the grounds that indigenous religions often remain vibrant and influential, even in the lives of converts. Primo Ardana documents the ambivalence with which Pentecostalism has been received by the mock Makua and indigenous and historically mobile people of northern Mozambique. The Makua are not averse to the newly arrived churches. Many relate to them powerfully. Few, however, remain in them permanently. Pentecostalism has not firmly taken root because it is seen as one potential path among many, a pragmatic and pluralistic outlook befitting a people accustomed to life on the move. This book primarily attributes the religious fluidity to an underlying existential mobility, an experimental disposition cultivated by the makua in their pre-Pentecostal pasts and carried by them into their post-Pentecostal futures. Faith in Flux aims not only to downplay the influence of global forces on local worlds, but to recognize that such forces, explosive though they may be, never succeed in capturing the everyday intricacies of actual lives over the course of our conversation today we'll take a closer look at this important work how this book not only provides a detailed ethnographic account of the makua people of northern mozambique but how it also re- is also rich in theoretical approaches and frameworks and how scholars of, and students of world christianity and anthropology stand to benefit from this great book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversations as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with Devaka Pramawardana, the author of Faith in Flux, Pentecostalism and Mobility in Rural Mozambique. Devaka Pramawardana is Associate Professor of Religion at Emory University. His research and teaching bring ethnographic and existential perspectives to bear on the fields of global Christianity and African religions. He is an anthropologist with extensive fieldwork experience in Makua-speaking communities of Mozambique in Southeast Africa. Among other awards and honors, uh, Devaka was named a 2017 Emerging Scholar by diverse issues in Higher Education's magazine, and received a Fulbright grant in 2020. His first book, which we'll be uh, talking about, was published in 2018 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Faith in Flux received the NUMA Book Award for Best Book in Pentecostal Studies, granted by the Society for Pentecostal Studies, and was also chosen as a finalist for the, for the Albert J. Rabatou Prize Prize for Best Book in Africana Religions, granted by the Journal of Africana Religions. Before joining Emory's Department of Religion in 2018, Devaka taught as the Assistant Professor of Religion at Colorado College in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Welcome, Devaka, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book.
2: Thank, thank you very much, Byung-ho. It's for me to thank you for offering me this uh, opportunity and for your time in uh, both uh, reading and, uh, and uh, offering to um, talk with me about the book. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Um, So first of all, I think we have some great news to share with our listeners. Um, As of September 2021, um, which is next month, um, we have the paperback of your book coming out. Is that correct?
2: It is correct. Yes, I'm very delighted about that. Thank you for for sharing that.
1: Well, congratulations, uh, Devaka. I think the timing is perfect as our listeners can uh, surely purchase the paperback not too long after our podcast airs. Um, And now I think it'll be great to kind of uh, start our conversations today by getting to know you a little more. Um, I think this is one of the great strengths we have um, in podcast interviews um, and kind of getting to know our authors. So I was wondering if you could share with us about your background and how you became interested in your field of study. And please feel free to mention any influential mentors or interlocutors you might have had along the way
2: yeah great well it may may take the entire hour to go over the number of mentors (laughs) and and interlocutors the influences are are many for which i'm uh, uh, deeply grateful i've had very good fortune uh, along my path but uh yeah I, i my own as you can tell by my name perhaps i'm of south asian origin in fact born in the country of sri lanka and i think that's a good place to start in terms of what my own trajectory is about uh, and how it manifests in the particular book now that uh, that we're going to be discussing. Sri Lanka is a religiously pluralistic country, and I was born into a Christian family, but the kind of Christianity that we um, practice practice uh, is one that is very much in conversation with people of different religious traditions. That doesn't presume a sense of superiority, uh, but more of, uh, mm-hmm. of 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 commonality and contact and and uh, and interaction Uh, so this these principles of solidarity and hospitality are very much baked into what it means uh, for me to have um grown grown up christian to to also to uh to have that um, aspect of what we could call an asian christian orientation as part of my own my own self Uh, so that's one piece of the of the background a very important one obviously uh, I grew up in the United States. My parents moved to uh, the U.S. when I was very small, but um, always again with this uh, with this with this interest in in what uh, Christianity looks like outside of the frame of the uh, U- U.S. churches that have um, that I grew up around, but that always uh, in in their kind of mainstream expressions always had created some 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 problems for me. I grew up in the Baptist tradition and the loudest Baptists in the 1980s were fundamentalists like Pat Robertson and such. Although I always knew of people like Martin Luther King and Walter Rauschenbusch and, and others, this was always hard to make sense of. So it was um, something that was important for me to note that there were ways of being Christian outside of the uh, kind of fundamentalist uh, um uh, uh narratives that were dominant in the 1980s especially and for that i always took an interest in christianity outside of the euro-american world um, partially from my own background but also because of these issues uh so i can fast forward from there to 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 college and then to the divinity school program that i did where i studied uh at harvard divinity school for my master's uh degree um, under the Tutelage of Harvey Cox, one of the popularizers of liberation theology in the North American Academy. And I I remember asking him once if I could connect through him to some of the big name theologians in Latin America, the Leonardo Boffs and Gustavo Mm -hmm. Gutierrez, etc. He connected me with somebody, a wonderful, uh, beautiful man, scholar of New Testament, who happened to be going to a part of Brazil, uh, the state of Bahia, Quite regularly and i basically through harvey cox's uh connection followed him um this is a, then becomes another big chapter in my in my in my chap in my my path to where i am now in that i i uh ended up working and living in in brazil i mentioned before uh with a good friend of mine and and a, and a teacher of yours there at princeton as jaimundo Barreto. Uh, working with him in social activism projects, on interreligious dialogue uh, mm-hmm. projects, uh, very significant and important in this particular part of Brazil, where African-derived religions were demonized and mm-hmm. and seen as, uh, um, uh, as as problematic to say to say the least. Uh, I spent two years in Brazil and ended up while there realizing that in order for me to really understand what the uh, State of Christianity is about, I really need to know something about Pentecostalism. And so I, I ended up, uh, out of my liberation theology interests, in developing also this desire to understand the phenomenon that was especially attracting uh, relatively poor populations, and that is the phenomenon of Pentecostalism. I wanted to study it in relation to Afro Brazilian religions, and then when I returned to Harvard for my PhD, there was a great scholar there, in the anthropology department whom, with whom I'd worked. But Incidentally, he ended up leaving Harvard soon after I arrived. And at the same time, I came under the influence of two really wonderful scholars, both of them working in West Africa. Mm. One of them, the Nigerian uh, scholar Jacob Lupona, Mm. and the other, an anthropologist named Michael Jackson who works in Sierra Leone. And the thought came to me as, as this opportunity arose with the departure of the person I was going to work with, that I might uh, shift my own focus to the continent of Africa so as to be able to take full advantage of these two wonderful scholars, uh, Mm Olopona and Jackson, and the mentorship I'd get from them. And the realization that there were, like the country of Brazil is, other Portuguese-speaking countries on the continent of Africa that are very little known, very um, hardly on the consciousness of people in this country, even in the academy, that's partially because Africa on a whole is marginalized but even within Africa the the it's the Portuguese speaking countries we hardly ever attend to them and so it felt like something of a of, of a calling to be able to um, use my language expertise uh, and language knowledge of Portuguese to be able to uh, move my work into a Portuguese um, speaking country in Africa so that's how I ended up in uh, Mozambique, I did my fieldwork there during the PhD program. And obviously, that's uh, the the period of research out of which came the book, uh, Faith in right. Flux.
1: Wow. Thank you for this opportunity to kind of um, see how the journey that you took in coming this far. And I really appreciate um, how there were so many influencers and uh, mentors that you had along mm-hmm. the way. Um, and kind of now uh, shifting our attention to the current, um, I would like to kind of also invite you to tell us a little, a little bit about how you came to write this uh, great book, uh, Faith in Flux, Pentecostalism mm-hmm. and Mobility in Rural Mozambique. Yeah. I was, yeah. And how did this idea develop? And, you know, you you take us on this journey of exploring the Niasa, right, um, mm-hmm. in the northern province of Mozambique. So. Yeah please um, feel free to share with us as well.
2: Yeah, there are a couple of important aspects to the book that I think are uh, necessary to lay out before I tell you how I came to get to these. Uh, one is the empirical um, observation, mm-hmm. the empirical contribution that I hope to make with this book, which is to say that there are parts of the world where Pentecostalism has arrived, but not thrived. Mm-hmm. That is to say, where where we have counter evidence to the standard narrative of Pentecostal growth and explosion, as is oftentimes reported. Um, I didn't expect to see this when I first went to Mozambique. I knew Africa in general, sub-Saharan Africa to be this uh, center of of gravity for uh, world Christianity, as we talk about in this field. Mm -hmm. And for that to take, especially the form of Pentecostal and charismatic uh, expressions, So I never would have imagined seeing what I saw, but what I saw surprised me. It frustrated me initially because I thought I need to find what I was supposed to find in order to do the research I'm here to do for a year. Mm -hmm. And what I was finding instead were uh, places where uh, uh, some missionaries had arrived, but uh, after having their church open for a few months, they had to close it or who arrived and, uh, did some initial uh, research and realized that this is not a place that's going to be hospitable to to the Pentecostal churches. Mm-hmm. I found people who were coming going to the churches but were leaving them. I heard from pastors how frustrated they were because people were not staying in them. I kept uh, finding uh, ways to get around this by going to different parts of the country and maybe finding the places that I would be able to explore the topic of Pentecostalism's rise and, and, and grand impact on, on the continent or in a part of the continent. But wherever I went, I, I kept running into this fr- frustration and it suddenly dawned on me that this is the more or less the principle of ethnographic research of the type mm-hmm. that I did and sort of the rule number one is to um uh, Allow your uh, opening assumptions to be upended, and uh, don't don't try to resist the evidence. And go with the flow, so to speak. As frustrating and difficult as that was, I simply s- decided at some point I need to stop fighting against what I'm seeing and let this be the story that I tell—a story mm. about Pentecostalism's occasional failure to flourish. And that's what I found in the particular region of Mozambique where I was. So that's the empirical uh, element, and what it is that got me to explore this in the part, in the northern part of Mozambique where I where I was for a set of accidental kind of twists and turns. But but the the theoretical point then is also I think worth noting, and this is also um, a, a bit of the story I want to tell, which is that I I, I feel very strongly about the ways in which human beings are. Um, are uh are are fluid and flexible in their uh in their dispositions by Mm -hmm. by as a general rule but i think um the the effect of modernity is largely to cause us to become much more fixed in terms of our residential patterns in terms of how we identify ourselves the identities we claim Uh, What I found fascinating about the Makua speaking people is that they privilege mobility and fluidity and they hold on to this disposition that I think is there within all of us, but they do so in particularly uh, interesting cultural and historical ways that um, manifest and in the kinds of uh, relationships that they have with the Pentecostal churches. But that's a little bit about how it is that I came to take an interest in the particular part of the country and the particular people of the country of Mozambique where I ended up doing my my research. Mm
1: -hmm. Wow, thank you for that great answer. And it kind of really helps us to put into perspective that this book is not, you know, set out to just simply refute, you know, what you've mentioned how there's this uh, global Pentecostal explosion, but you you try to tell the stories, the unknown stories, and you shed light into the places where, as you mentioned, Pentecostal churches have not yet flourished as much. So I think this is a great uh, representation of what world Christianity is set out to do as well um, as a field of study. So
2: Yeah, I see this as very much in continuity with the aims of the world Christianity paradigm. As you mentioned mm-hmm. in your opening, it's to look mm-hmm. to the margins of, uh, of, of, the, of the Christian world. And that's what the World Christianity um, um, uh, Project allows us to do so very nicely. In, in part, what I want to do is extend that to say that, as important as it is to note that Christianity is flourishing outside of the Euro-American world. And that claim has to be made in order for the topic to be taken seriously in the academy. And I appreciate all the work that's been done to establish that Christianity statistically and, and, and in many other ways as well is really the, it's, its center of gravity is now in places like sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I, I think um, uh, I, I've I've been gratified to see scholars of the world Christianity appreciate this move as well is that if we want to attend to the margins we have to also take seriously the margins of the margins that is to yeah. say places where Christianity has not um, taken shape taken root. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and that also is part of the story of global Christianity. And so that I think uh, I appreciate you noting that's something that I I hope to do here, not to refute, as you say, not to refute the statistical facts of Christianity's growth around the world, Mm -hmm. but to complicate the story by attending to how Christianity looks in places where it doesn't, in fact, explode or flourish the way it does perhaps elsewhere.
1: Right. And thank you for that answer. Um, if I may just, um, you briefly mentioned um, how the kind of stories that you, the reasons why you've, you've uh, reached out to Northern Pro- Province of Mozambique and especially to the Mahua, uh societies. And in order to kind of set the groundwork for your book in the introduction, you asked some of the important questions. Help us um, as readers familiarize ourselves with some of the frameworks, approaches, and methodologies you are kind of employing And you mentioned um, how you utilize this principle of existential mobility as your guiding kind of premise to this book. Um, But for our listeners that might be not yet familiar uh, with this concept, with this uh, principle, I was wondering if you could explain a little more about existential mobility as you also situate your book as the work of existential phenomenological anthropology. So. Would you like to explain us to us a little? Yeah. More? So mobility,
2: as you know, I'm sure, has become quite a, a trendy, a fashionable mm-hmm. uh, trope in in contemporary academic studies, and that for good reason. Uh, uh, you, you and I are good examples of transnational mobility, yes, yes. <laughs> uh,
0: and,
2: and this is a phenomenon that is increasingly uh, common and rapid. Uh, 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 around the world. And there's a lot of ways in which Christianity connects with this history of mission mm-hmm. of migrations to, along the lines of, of missions, for example, of mm-hmm. media, etc. So there's a lot of uh, attention to the theme of mobility. What I worry about with that is that there's, um, there's a, there's a potential for missing something of great importance, um, which is that when we locate this theme of mobility or related themes of hybridity or diaspora or transnational or transculturation and all of these kind of uh, um, uh, uh, what uh, uh, all of these terms that have currency analytical currency today. Mm -hmm. When we associate these with obviously cosmopolitan sites, big urban centers or the World Wide Web or transnational networks, et cetera, um, it can feed into inadvertently for sure. But it can feed into a narrative that there are certain parts of the world or certain people of the world who are uh, not part of those transnational, obviously cosmopolitan centers sites that are um, that are in fact not mobile, that are more or less static, that are more or less uh, stuck in place. And so when you look at uh, parts of what are sometimes termed traditional Africa, rural Africa, uh, Mm -hmm. primitive populations of the world throughout, the the reigning stereotype about them is that they are static, that they are outside of time, outside Mm -hmm. of history. This is a really problematic uh, um, uh, reduction, obviously, that we, we we all would want to resist. And yet there's this tendency to focus our, our, our studies of mobility only on populations that are different from such populations, um, right. from such people. Um, what I wanted to do is say that if these themes of hybridity, of mobility, of diaspora, etc., if they are to mean anything, they have to mean something in those seemingly out-of-the-way places, as well as on these obviously cosmopolitan sites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that theme of um, mobility, I want to move it away from the political, economic, uh, transnational dimensions of it to something that's much more ingrained in what it is to be human. And so that's the reason that I qualify the form of mobility that matters for my project not as um a geographic mobility although that's definitely there as you know mm-hmm. in the book yeah. the makua are a highly nomadic even people mm-hmm. um, but uh it's not physical this displacement that, that that is the key for understanding what's at play here what is uh what matters is in fact their existential mobility, mobility as a quality of being human. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to be is to move. That's a very central notion for the Makua people, so that even without, even for the many who never leave the villages, um, they are always traversing between the town and the bush, for example. They are right. always circulating among the different compounds of or the different uh, households, Uh, In their region They're always experimenting with the options That are available to them They're always cultivating multiple crops
0: Mm. And
2: and circulating between them They're always telling stories about Themselves and about their ancestors As people who came from a Sacred mountain and then returned to it They understand death as being Not a resting in peace As we tend to say in the Christian and western traditions But as a movement back and forth Between the land of the living and the land of the dead in other words, without them having to be crossing oceans and, 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 and traveling on planes, they are already deeply uh, embedded to use mm-hmm. this term ironically, embedded in a tradition of mobility, in yeah. a way of being uh, that is uh, that is the very opposite of stasis. Mm-hmm. So that becomes very important for me to understand what's in play uh, here, that theme of existential mobility. And I wanted to say one more word in, in in response to the question about what are my approaches. I want to say that why, how in large part I came to this as a theme for my study overall is because of something I believe very importantly in, which is the importance of, um, of, of language work, language study mm-hmm. as part of our research. Yeah. I did not know the Makua language before going to this, uh, to undertake this project. I, like probably most people in the United States don't even know, didn't even know that there is such a language as Makua. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I went and I uh, determined that in order for me to do this work well, I need to at least gain some rudimentary knowledge mm-hmm. of this language. I did so first by studying as well as I could a dictionary that had already been written between the Mm -hmm. Makua and Portuguese language translating Mm -hmm. between these two. And it was written by a Catholic priest, a person I came to greatly admire, who's been deeply involved with the community, living there all of his life, all of his adult life. Uh, Anyway, he uh, used this term. Uh, he he took the word convert in portuguese converter it was a very key word yeah. for what i was beginning to explore in my early months of of my time there in in uh, among the makua people and i looked up what that term translates as in his that, uh, translation it was opit, opitikusha murima which means mm-hmm. literally an inversion of the heart or a change mm-hmm. of heart what was striking to me is that as, as as soon as i went to speak with people about their Tendencies to go between the mosque and the church or the church and the ancestral ground or to circulate between these different religious spaces. They never use the term opitikusha murima, a very Mm -hmm. interior understanding of the heart being involved in religious activity and especially in religious change. Rather, they use the much more mundane, I should Mm -hmm. say, maybe pedestrian verb, Otama, which is to move, that was how they understood conversion. Conversion wasn't an about wasn't about an interior transformation; it was about an external transportation. That they were moving themselves bodily from one space to another. What became clear to me when I saw how frequently that was the word for that people understood conversion to to to, to entail, it became clear to me that in order for me to understand what was this. How can we make sense of this um, seemingly anomalous uh, c- way of relating to the Pentecostal churches that people would enter, but they would leave? People would stay mm-hmm. for a time, but they would g- then depart, but then they would go back again. This kind of uh, oscillating relationship with the Pentecostal churches that mm-hmm. frustrated pastors. It became, sense, it became clear to me that for me to make sense of that, I had to understand what conversion meant in, in Makua understandings and this and the and the launching pad for that was this was this verb otama again the verb to move Mm -hmm. so here once again uh that is the, the 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 other element of importance for my approach which is starting with indigenous categories indigenous understandings in this case the understanding of religious change as being about geographical change
0: slash nbn50 to get 50%
1: off. Yes. Wow. Thank you for that insight into your approach and about, you know, sharing us about existential mobility and how you utilize um, this concept and to lay out in a way your book as well. Because if you see in in the introductions and into the uh, theme of the whole book, You use mobility, you use religious conversion, uh, Otama, you say, um, again, inspired by the uh, Makua, uh, to delineate your work as you organize the book into three parts. Um, I remember it's part one, you titled To Move, O Otama, uh, as you investigate the mobility within the Makua uh, history and within the economic and social framework. Part two um, is titled, To Leave and to Enter, as you investigate mobility as a kind of defining quality of the makua self. And part three, um, titled, To Be With, as you demonstrate how the ultimate goal of religious mobility is not to have a religion, but to achieve a sense of togetherness, to be uh, as uh, together. Um, And each part, if I may mention, it contains two chapters of its own. So but in order to kind of fully embrace our conversation today, and I know you briefly mentioned about how the, uh, the people of uh, Makua have, a, uh, have this culture of mobility. As I think it would be great to uh, briefly mention about their history as well, because right. their history also really is, is, is um, central in how this culture of mobility has formed. Um, you mentioned this throughout part one and throughout the rest of the book, the the ethnographic and historic account of the Makua people. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of briefly share with us how this their history, the history of the Makua, how, how it has been filled with flights mm. and migrations and encompassing mm. this culture of mobility. Do you mind sharing just briefly yeah. about their unique history? Yeah, it would be a pleasure to do mm. so. Uh, uh, Similar
2: to many, um, well, many populations generally going back in 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 in, in, in time before the uh, before the the projects of modernization and sedentarization that more or less we take to be normal and natural ways of being, uh, the Makua, like all human beings, were very mobile. Uh, they persisted for a long time, longer than their neighboring ethnic groups. Through hunting, mm. for example, uh, they were not very quick to become settled in their in, in agricultural um, sort of plots. Uh, that's one element that's of importance. Uh, that part of that history, but it's also I think notable that the Makua people suffered a great amount over time. Um, the, the historical records, of course, are very um, scarce and 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 one-sided. So, but the oral narratives that I heard from people was that they understood that their ancestors lived very precarious lives, in mm-hmm. large part because there were continually natural. Um, Phenomena like droughts and such, especially droughts, not so much floods, that required them to always be seeking uh, greener pastures to be able mm-hmm. to find ways in which to, to sustain themselves. They had to move, um, to flee. But they also have uh, very vivid memories of the slave trade, uh, sort of communal memories of, of, of how in the 19th century, especially the Makua people, suffered a great deal from uh, coastal traders who came and kidnapped them and sent them uh, to the coast and then beyond uh, to the Americas and elsewhere as slaves, and so also in the context of the history of slave raiding, mm. it became very clear that in order to live, they had to escape, they had to move, they had to be able to um, be comfortable with uh, um, uh, w- with the, with with fleeing quickly. Mm. Uh, they also had to deal with uh, the colonial project, which was, as as it has always been, about uh, governing people and controlling them and taxing them and conscripting them. Mm -hmm. And uh, above all, what this required was uh, fixing them in place. Mm -hmm. And so part of the colonial project, but also part of the post-colonial modernization project of the post-independence Mozambican government was to uh, enact these villagization campaigns, that is Mm. to get people to build homes that were permanent structures and to be stable within them. Uh, Clearly, for uh, reasons that we can associate with the, uh, the, the, the propensity of states, nation states, to capture and to control their populations, Um, But this was always very difficult for the Makua people who preferred Mm. from their own historical experience to retain uh, a, a, a mobility. And so a great expression and example of this is that during the time that I was there in the early 2010s, the time that I was doing my most exhaustive research for this book, there was a campaign by the contemporary district uh, administrator to get mm-hmm. people to build sturdier homes with mud bricks and with uh, zinc or some kind of uh, a metal for their roofs. And people had access to these materials, but by and large, they were not eager to to move into what were called uh, modern homes and what, mm-hmm. obviously, from our perspective here in the U.S., would also be seen as quite uh, more or less... Uh, between quotes primitive but even this idea was a bit too sturdy or a bit too fixed for them they Mm. preferred the mud uh and 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 the bamboo and the straw in large part because these did not take a long time or a lot of effort to construct and therefore when the time came for them to move away as they anticipated there's always war on the horizon i feel to mention this but the other major uh disruptions that the makua have historical memory with are are wars both pre-independence and post-independence a civil war which above all required them to escape as much as they could Mm. and so they're consciously uh, acutely aware of the of the fragility of life and the reality of needing to be able to to move to leave on a dime and Mm. so their sense is that they have other priorities than that of fixing themselves in a particular place their priority is being able to 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 move to survive but also to move to be able to be with other people we'll get to that right. term the be with notion right. later I believe um, but but that is it was very troubling for me at first because it runs so much counter to what I as a member of the uh, sort of uh, this uh, um, Somebody raised with this modern mindset yeah. came is, is so counter to my understanding of what well being requires. For them, it's not sturdy uh, four walls around their houses and, and, and a sense of stability and rootedness. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, is sometimes inimical to their goal of uh, of, of well being. So all of this, um, as you can see, is very much uh, fed by or or cultivated by. This historical experience. Uh, So I'm glad you asked about that. The history of the Makua is very much a
1: history of a people on the move. Thank you for that great answer. And just to mention in your book as well, uh, we see this also spilling out into their farming habits too, right? Is that correct? How how their their culture of mobility also, you know, really um, influences how they do farming um as yeah. well it was very fascinating how they dig deep if i'm not missing the potatoes they put uh, yeah. deep into the ground as well that's right
2: <laughs> so the preference that they have and i'm not the first person to think about this in terms uh-huh. of a strategy for evading the control of government uh, mm-hmm. uh, of, of the of the nation state uh, mm-hmm. james scott his work was very influential uh in 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 getting me to think about this he's a political anthropologist his book uh, um uh, the art of not being governed. He he writes about tubers or or, mm. or um, um, root crops like cassava yeah. or or yeah. potatoes as having this uh, of lending this ability to be planted underground, invisible to the tax collector, so that people could <laughs> dig them up piecemeal yeah. as needed. This is a uh, what he calls an escape crop, uh, yes. a crop that is especially. Um, Amenable to people who need to be uh, ready to move on a dime, but the other element there I'll briefly mention is shifting cultivation, a habit, yeah. a pattern of 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 uh, of, uh, of cultivation that um, uh, again is sometimes is sometimes critiqued by uh, the uh, by by um, people who are wanting to modernize anthropo- uh, arc- arc- agricultural work mm-hmm. by saying that you ought to have your own plot and rather than sort of uh, 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 uh creating a plot uh, uh, of a particular crop and, and then and then burning it after it's uh, after it's done you should be able to keep the same crop over and over rather than moving between these multiple spaces but that movement between is also very much that shifting a- aspect of cultivation is very much part of the contemporary agricultural practice again another expression of this proclivity toward mobility
1: yeah. Thank you for that answer. And I'm glad you mentioned this because um, now in the second part, we pay closer attention to the the lived body the touching on the dynamics of initiating rituals mm-hmm. and also this in light and in light of also conversion to it which i think you can answer mm-hmm. this question in light of this as well but um and you've put this interesting notion out there of crossing and recrossing of borders mm-hmm. i think that's a great way to put this uh and in this context as well so in chapter three the brief story of florencio um, is very helpful in helping helping the readers understand what you're trying to unpack here in this section. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could elaborate more on this, this and enlighten us about how makua embraced the rite of passage yeah. and how it can be viewed in the same light as how makua interpret conversion uh, yeah. i think that's that was the original question that i wanted to previously ask because you know we they you mentioned they use the term of, of to move right um yeah. in interpreting their understanding of conversion and as you have pointed out while pentecostalism demands this rupture in conversion for makua and and in the example of florencio we can see that it's not a singular or momentous and irreversible but it's like an uh initiation it's like more of a routine that is repeatable and reversible so please Mm -hmm. i would like to invite you to share about um this 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 is where i try to build
2: on and 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 in some ways critique some of the dominant uh Mm -hmm theories within the anthropology of Christianity, yeah, yeah. which is a, uh, a field we haven't mentioned yet, but it's where we probably my strongest uh, interventions I try to make are, are, are into this field. It's a um, it's a field that is especially uh, notable for having emphasized the, the, the Pentecostal tradition. Um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, a lot of the literature focuses on it. And a lot of the theorizing around it, associated with its the, the founder of this field, Joel Robbins, especially, is around this notion of discontinuity or rupture.
0: Mm-hmm. That is,
2: that Pentecostalism is notable not only because it spreads widely, but wherever it spreads, it displaces that which came before. It, it 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 entails an understanding of change that is so radical that it means that it leads people to more or less break with their pasts. Um, this is a very interesting and I think brave theoretical intervention within the anthropological tradition that has always stressed continuity. Mm. And so I very much take this point and I like the, 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 the importance of this contribution to say that people are capable, even so-called mm-hmm. traditional people, insofar as they do things like convert to Pentecostalism, are capable of radical and rupturing change. But what I found in the case of the Makua, and this is the case with the, with my friend Florencio, I'll tell you briefly the story of him, um, or for your audience, I know you know it already, is that he was a member of the Pentecostal church, but mm-hmm. he went and attended a rite of passage when he was 13 or so. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the traditional rite of passage, which is the thing that against which the Pentecostal preachers are continually... Uh, 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 speaking, they, they, they want these aspects of traditional life, things like uh, circumcision rites within the rites of passage, these, tr- these rites that happen over periods of weeks in the bush, these are seen to be problematic, demonic, the mm. kinds of things that are antithetical to the Christian uh, faith and therefore need to be renounced. And what I found in the case of uh, Florencio is that, well, he was a part of the church, the Pentecostal church, but that didn't stop him from going to the traditional rite of passage. And what was necessary for me to understand why he would be capable of this, I found to, the evidence for that or the understandings for that to be evident within, their, within the rite of passage itself. And what mm-hmm. was important for me in noting this, my, my own observation of this male rite of passage that I was privileged to be able to attend and and, and observe uh, on two different occasions, is that um, it, it, two things that were really significant about them, both of which put my understanding of these rites of passage um In a different, give it a different spin than the traditional studies of rites of passage, Victor Turner, etc., Arnold van Gennep, that usually talk about rites of passage as a unilinear transition from boyhood to manhood or from Mm -hmm. girlhood to womanhood. That is to say, it is a single direction of movement, Mm -hmm. and also that um, it's it's uh, and also that the space, that liminal space, as it's theorized of the of the of the ritual grounds is understood to be uh, sort of an an amorphous space, that there's no real structure to it. It's the anti-structural zone. Mm -hmm. What I found, in fact, to be the case (laughs) is that both of those assumptions are wrong in the Makua uh, rite of passage in the first point is that people will the boys will will enter into the ritual ground but when they return they retain many of the properties that they had before, when they went in and they return for example to their mothers and they have the same kind of intimacy with the mothers that they had before, There's certainly a change that's in play, but I think it's overstating the case to say that they are radically new kinds of people, that they have ruptured from their past, as would be said among these theorists of rites of passage. There is rather a, a great amount of continuity that re, that, that's, that's still there. And mm-hmm. the other point of importance was that on the ritual grounds, it's not that there was just this one space, but there were multiple spaces that they circulated among mm-hmm. during this period of the rites of passage. What Mm -hmm. I found from both of these observations is that if we're to take initiation as an analogy for conversion, as is often done, people are Mm -hmm. converts in the the sense that they are initiated into a new way of being. If we're to take that seriously, then a makua understanding of conversion would have to follow the makua understanding of initiation. The makua understanding of initiation is that borders are real. There's a Mm. real difference between the the village and the bush within Mm. which the ritual takes place. There's a real distinction between the different subspaces within the ritual grounds. But just because there is this crossing, doesn't mean that there will be another crossing, and doesn't mean that there won't be a crossing back. Thus, what I came to see is that a makua understanding of conversion premised on a makua understanding of initiation is that rupture is real, but as Mm -hmm. you said, rupture is also repeatable and Mm -hmm. reversible. People Mm -hmm. can cross, but they can also cross back. This is important for me to understand then the lives and the tendencies that the the stories of people like Florencio, who Mm -hmm. crossed into pentecostalism but crossed out of it and then crossed back again this back and forth pattern mm-hmm. i want to say takes seriously this possibility of radical rupturing change but it doesn't make it the end point it doesn't mm-hmm. lead to people being stopped st- stuck or or static uh, as a result i phrase this in some parts of my book in terms of the tendency to see the especially Pentecostal Christian tradition, as a tradition of being born again. The born again phenomenon is there, but people can be born again, again. And that's Mm -hmm. what I want to emphasize here. There Mm -hmm. is a multiplicity, there's a continuity, uh, there's change, radical change that's real, but there's a continuity of that change as well. People change, but they change again. People are born again, and then they're born again, again. In other words, there is a possibility of this repetition that I think is missed in a lot of the ways uh, conversion has come to be theorized.
1: Yeah. And thank you for that answer. And it kind of now we continue to build up on our previous discussions and this is a great understanding to have and to discuss this next question. And that is you aim to describe the Makua religious experiences in terms of a polyontological mobility by building on Janet McIntosh's study of Islam among the mm-hmm. Giriyama of Kenya, uh, in which she proposes uh, polyontology as the conceptual alternative to syncretism and hybridity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could say more on what you meant by uh, polyontological mobility, and as you you know kind of frame this for the Makua uh, religious experiences, and what this polyontological mobility entails. Um, yeah.
2: So very clearly what I'm trying to do in this book mm-hmm. is make some contribution to the longstanding debates over the categories of uh, religious identity that usually uh, have multiple terms associated with it. Syncretism yes. and hybridity. Mm-hmm. Um, the anthropology of Christianity has resisted uh, these terms in large part because they want to see rupture as a possibility where people go from being one uh, kind of identity to very cleanly another kind of identity. And so this is one way of critiquing the categories of syncretism and and hybridity. Uh, I agree with the need to think critically about these terms. In fact, what I found among the Makua was not precisely what we tend to mean when we talk of syncretism and hybridity. In other words, it wasn't a melding or a blending of traditions. The traditions and there are multiple at play here. There's Christian Catholicism. There's um, uh, there's uh, um, the Pentecostal tr- uh, churches. Mm-hmm. There's Islam, and mm-hmm. there's what has, for some, but not for everybody, been uh, uh, conceptualized as uh, ancestral religion. Right. But if we understand these are these are the different possibilities that exist, what's important to know about the Makua is that. Um, Many people have have, uh, resisted the idea of these being distinct compartments for a while, for a long Mm -hmm. time. But this has nowadays become Mm accepted, that there are distinctions between these traditions. There are borders between them. These are separate traditions. Yes. Mm -hmm. What's important for us, though, is to note that even though they've accepted this epistemology, we -hmm. can say, an epistemology of distinct religions they haven't accepted the implications that that epistemology has for their identity. What they do is they bring their subjectivity that is characterized by this deep existential mobility, as I've discussed before, they bring their propensity toward movement to this epistemology of distinctions. Mm
0: -hmm. What that
2: means is that rather than having religions blend together, what we see rather is this compartmentalization, this yes. this willingness to see the traditions as separate, but without a willingness to remain uh, uh, tied only to one or another. Mm-hmm. In other words, then what becomes important for me is, uh, as an alternative to syncretism or hybridity, this notion of polyontological mobility or polyontologism, as uh, Janet McIntosh theorizes it. And mm-hmm. I think that this is a term that helps me to understand what's in play here mm. uh again her the, the problem in this case with syncretism hybridity and other such terms is is in fact that they ultimately uh, become another singularity another yeah. ism everything mm-hmm. becomes coherent within another big whole thing i mm. said it's a mono ontological idea Mm-hmm. Not monotheistic, we've got the monotheistic traditions, but this mono-ontological notion is that you either have this tradition or you have this mixing of multiple mm-hmm. traditions. Either way, you're talking about a singular thing. The mm-hmm. mixed thing is still a singular thing. Mm-hmm. And what I think I like about this paleontology notion is that it preserves the possibility of pluralism as pluralism, a radical kind of pluralism that says we don't need to conjoin things to acknowledge that there is difference. And what the makua show is that with without um, combining everything into one, pre- while preserving the distinctions of these different traditions, they can still relate m- in a multiplex fashion to the varieties mm. of things about them. And that's, um, again, a, a key to understanding that comes from things like the initiation right, But right. well, it's what I observe very much in the ways that people navigate uh, negotiate that they ch- traverse these borders between the different religious traditions that are available to them.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for that answer, and I love the way how you um, use the word compartmentalization. In a way, you're having, uh, you're belo- you have a multiple belonging in a way, but you're you know uh, separating them. But um, at the same time, this poly Ontological mobility, this concept, this notion is very helpful in understanding better um, the Makua religious experiences. And thank you for that, for sharing that. Um, Now, segueing into the last part of your book, um, which is titled To Be With You, um, you tackle on some important questions. Again, the big why uh, Mm -hmm. question regarding this religious mobility, helping us to see how the reason why leads to the sense of. Being with or this uh, togetherness. Mm. Here you discuss a fascinating and yet very important topic, which is gender, um, especially the women in the Makua and their interconnectedness with religion. Mm. I know. I remember in the in the start of this uh, part, you admitted the challenges you faced in the beginning of your field work and kind of obtaining more female. Perspectives on your research question, but still, I think you managed to highlight some important points in this chapter. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if we could talk more on the uh, Makua woman, especially in light of the alarming statement made by one of your interviewees. You know, I, I remember them saying Makua women have no religion. I think mm-hmm. as there's this uh, paternalistic, there's uh, the male centeredness um, here as well. Um, and I was wondering if you can say more about the roles of Makua women. Makua women. And what do you think attracted Makua women to Pentecostal churches as well?
2: Yeah, great. Well, uh, there's a large literature on gender and Pentecostalism, a a lot of it making the important point that why women tend to be so dominant within the tradition, numerically speaking, Mm -hmm. is because the the Pentecostal tradition offers a a space in which their authority, uh, their spiritual power can be um uh accepted and taken seriously unlike in some other traditions um where there the patriarchal uh structure is especially evident now there's no doubt patriarchy within the pentecostal churches even those that i i, I studied in this part of mozambique uh but part of what attracts women to the church is the ability for them to be spiritual healers for example mm. to mm-hmm. voice their prayers audibly and to have a certain degree of of, of autonomy and and uh and power that's lacking in, in other churches. What I see is characteristic of that characteristic of Pentecostalism also holds for what could be called for lack of a better term, the ancestral religion of the Makua, where Mm -hmm. women are also the, 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 the um, power brokers. They're the ones Mm -hmm. who convey the relationship and the prayers and the offerings between the living and the dead, for example, Mm -hmm. by, Far, it's women who are the leaders and the authorities when it comes to Makua uh, uh, indigenous tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, what's striking to me is that the woman who said this to me—that Makua women have no religion—and this was mm-hmm. her way of making sense of something that a lot of people told me that the real, if I want to understand conversion, I have to, I have to see it in the lives of women because it's mm-hmm. women who follow. The, the the religion of their uncles when they're growing up, and then they follow the religion of their husband when they marry. Um, and so it's women who change religion, etc. And, and and the common phrase was makua women have no religion, including this was often spoken by women themselves. And what I came to understand was that in order for me to under, make sense of why that phrase would be acceptable to women, it came under important for me to understand what religion means and what has means or or have the women like women have no religion so let me Uh say a word about both on the religion point note what i said before that both pentecostalism and the indigenous religious traditions are the ones that have a greater amount of space than Mm -hmm. the alternatives for women female authority Contrast that with both Islam and Roman Catholicism, the other major traditions that are present in this part of Mozambique. Both mm-hmm. of them deeply patriarchal, both of them male-led, in which women are not given uh, much a voice whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, when people use the word "etini" among the Makua, which is the Makua word for religion, mm-hmm. almost always they are referring to either Catholicism or to Islam. When they're mm-hmm. referring to the uh, ancestral religion, they very rarely use that word. And when they refer to Pentecostalism, Pentecostals and evangelicals generally oftentimes talk about their tradition, not as a religion, but as a relationship, a relationship with Jesus. Yes. Rather than uh, this notion of an institutional or ossified, reified type of thing like a religion mm-hmm. where this is not a religion this is a relationship oftentimes one hears this in evangelical circles what was striking to me then is that when the when when even women were willing to uh, voice this notion that women makua women have no religion what they possibly were doing was they were eliding not the idea of them uh, choosing their own path but they were eliding or they were sidelining that which already sidelined them the mm. religions, as they were known, were the religions that were the patriarchal traditions. And, mm-hmm. and, and if they don't want, if they don't want women, the women more or less are saying that they don't they're not that invested in having them either. Mm-hmm. right? That's one point. The other point is about the verb to have Makua women uh, have no religion. Here it became important for me to note that there is in the Makua language, and in many sub-Saharan Bantu languages, There's no verb that easily translates this notion of to have, which Mm -hmm. is a very possessive kind of Mm -hmm. private property kind of a notion. Uh, What instead the Makua language has is a compound word, okala no, to be with. That's the way in which you say to have something. Mm -hmm. So I I make the point also over this chapter that um, women who have been, uh, who largely are not Portuguese speaking, who largely have been denied educational opportunities, are also better preservers of this sensibility that what life is about is not possessing things, owning things. After all, ownership often weighs you down. Mm -hmm. The more that you have, the harder it is to move. What becomes much more preserved, what is much more preserved by women themselves, by virtue of their denial of these modernization gifts, like education and cash and all of these a market economy, by virtue of their exclusion, they've been able to retain this idea not of well-being as predicated on ownership, but on well-being as predicated on togetherness, on being mm-hmm. with. Uh, so here also, there's a there's a way in which we can understand this idea of having no religion is acceptable to women because to have anything, in the sense of the the Portuguese or the English versions of this notion of to have, mm-hmm. is to uh, uh, accept a a a way of being that is less than ideal, because mm-hmm. in other words, because as I've said before, to have things in the sense of possession is to make it harder to move, and to move is what is is sort of is more or less the 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 foundation of what makes it possible to be with other people. And mm-hmm. so this is in, in again an argument for why it is that we need to stop thinking so much about. Having a religion or having a religious identity, it's not so much an emphasis on identity, but an Mm -hmm. emphasis on mobility. And I argue in this chapter that women are especially um, uh, uh, strong preservers of this understanding, uh, Mm -hmm. a much more fluid understanding of what it means to be
1: human and a much more relational understanding of
2: what it means to be human. Of
1: course. And thank you for that great answer. And I know I'm being aware of the time here, and it's already, you know, we've we've talked so much, but it's already leading up to our last chapter in your mm-hmm. book. And you return to one of your main uh, uh, questions. Why has uh, Pentecostalism failed to grow explosively here amongst the maqua I think um, I really enjoyed this chapter as well. As you, throughout the chapter, provide a glimpse uh, of how their disposition toward mobility, ironically, has been also fostered by and within Pentecostal churches, mm-hmm. in a way making it difficult for gathering people in church on Sundays, which you've uh, kind of narrated that in the book as well. So I was wondering if you could say more on this issue, um, just briefly, what role of or what kind of difference does Pentecostalism make uh, in the lives of Makua people?
2: So what I argue in this final chapter is that there are, in fact, people who seem to be very clearly within a particular identity, within a particular tradition, that they are not evidently moving back and forth between the ancestral ritual spaces and the Pentecostal churches. So -hmm. how do we understand such people? One of the observations that I made there, and I'm not at all the first to make this, there's a large literature among scholars of Pentecostalism showing this, is that mobility, what I call the micro-mobilities of ritual life, for example, are an inherent feature of Pentecostalism themselves. Mm-hmm. Anyone who has entered into the pen- space of a Pentecostal church sees immediately what differentiates this tradition from other Christian traditions is how active and mobile the body is. Yes, there, there, there are there's dancing, there's running, there's rolling, uh, there's all kinds of, 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 of ambulations that are happening in the, in the, in the, in the time of the space, uh, in the space of the church. I, I document, uh, for example, these movements mm-hmm. in and out of the church space as part of the worship practice. That's one el- element of how ritually mobility is preserved within Pentecost. Mobility is advanced within Pentecostalism especially. Mm-hmm. The idea that people are always oscillating between sanctification and damnation suggests so once again you're you're not saved and therefore uh, it always eternally in a state of salvation. There's always this pulling back and f- uh, back I- 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 into uh, into the the. the, the the space of the devil, for example, but you have right. to come back. And again, here we see this emphasis on movement uh, internal to the tradition. And above all, you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that blows where it will. In other words, uh, uh, the the doctrine, the, the, the pneumatology at the core of Pentecostal traditions is always and already about motion. All mm. of this is to say that for those who become Pentecostalism and apparently are so in a permanent way, they have not given up this makua propensity toward mobility. They have found it within Pentecostalism. And for those who leave the Pentecostal churches after entering it, they are doing so not just because they had this uh, this proclivity fostered by their makua upbringing, but because they had it reinforced by what they found in the churches themselves. So mm-hmm. ironically, we see that this disposition toward mobility that makes people have a fluid uh, and and partial relationship with the Pentecostal churches actually um, uh, finds expression and finds reinforcement within those Pentecostal churches themselves, okay. so that people enter them and leave them and enter them again. And I argue this point I, as strongly as I can. Not in not not in spite of the Pentecostal tradition, but because of the Pentecostal tradition, we tend in our scholarship to put our um, emphasis on the discourse of the of the pastors which talk about demonizing the past and mm. and and having a permanent rupture and 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 being fully within the the, the christian fold but mm. i want in this chapter to say we need to pay attention not only to the words the rhetoric of 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 uh, sort of the ideal church members or their leaders We need to pay attention to the practices as well, which, Mm. by the way, finds expression also in the practical theologies of Pentecostal churches, which are almost entirely about movement. And Mm. I would argue, as I try to hear, not only movement within the churches, but movement beyond the churches. There's a great amount of literature by Pentecostal theologians about these principles of creativity and improvisation. Natality, mm-hmm. as Nimi Wariboko puts it, or mm-hmm. of of even of interreligious connections, as people like Amos Young puts it, as mm-hmm. being uh, inherent to the Pentecostal understanding of the Holy Spirit moving where it will. For example, mm-hmm. and that's the argument that I want to make here. What I'm arguing uh, uh, ultimately is that this is not exactly a story of Pentecostal failure to flourish but Pentecostalism doing what Pentecostalism is. And here I want to say we learn something about Pentecostalism itself by looking at it in this marginal uh, situation. Pentecostalism is about this dynamism, this mm-hmm. ever-renewing capacity that is predicated not on stasis, but on precisely, precisely the opposite, this principle mm-hmm. of mobility that I mm-hmm. argue is exceptionally there among Pentecostalists and among the Makua.
1: Well, Devaka, thank you so much um, for that answer and also for your time today to discuss your extraordinary book and very important work um, in understanding not only just the Makua societies of Mozambique, but also understanding, uh, kind of putting more more argument, more picture into this whole explosion, understanding the Pentecostal explosion uh, that is taking uh, place worldwide. Um, as we end today's interview, though, one final question that I would like to ask you is, do you mind sharing with us about your current and future projects and what you hope to work on? Um,
2: yeah, thanks very much for that. Mm. You know, I'm supposed to be in Mozambique right now. I, uh, oh. I, was go- I received a grant to have that, uh, uh, yeah. to be back there, uh, in fact, this moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, not in large part because of the pandemic some other complications that arose but it's very important for me as a field worker a very strong ethical principle that informs my own research Mm -hmm. uh, approach is that i maintain a relationship with the people who have been so receptive to me and my family over Mm -hmm. these years i worry a lot about how people will oftentimes um uh, uh, have an instrumentalist relationship with the people in their field site. They, right. they live among them, they write a book, they advance their career, and then mm-hmm. they never go back. For yeah. me, it's important to go back, and I intend to continue working with, living among, communing with, uh, the Makua people, especially in the part of uh, the country where I where I uh, my wife and I were living, so mm-hmm. I, the first thing is to say I tend to go back and do my research uh, mm-hmm. among the same population. In this case, what I hope to do, what I was hoping to do right now, is to expand upon Chapter Three, which we talked about briefly. Yeah. That's the chapter on uh, rites of passage. Right. Uh, I want to be able to. Um, understand more fully what's Mm. in play in this, what I described earlier as a non-linear approach to initiation, an approach that sees the self, not only as, um, undergoing multiple radical changes, which is the theme of my first book, but mm-hmm. undergoing changes in a circular fashion. Also mm-hmm. there in my first book, but I want to emphasize again this point that change can be nonlinear. Yeah. And I think that we find good evidence of that in Makua rites of passage, which deserve further exploration mm. for two reasons, especially in large part, because the dominant um literature about rites of passage in africa and elsewhere is again about this unilinear shift which i think is a maybe inadvertent um application of a western paradigm about what maturation consists of mm-hmm. a, 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 a movement without uh, return without looking back um that's that's one reason. Uh, but the other reason has to do, again, with my desire to make some interventions in the field of anthropology or in ethnographic studies. Generally, a mm-hmm. lot of times we talk about fieldwork as a rite of passage. Yes, we do our research and we go on, undergo this ordeal. What mm-hmm. I worry about is the point that I made in the beginning of this answer is that that licenses the possibility of doing the fieldwork, mm-hmm. leaving the field site and never returning to it again. But Mm. what I want to see is that if we talk about fieldwork as a rite of passage, I would also like to see it as the makua do, as a rite of return. In other words, we do the work, we become different kinds of people, but we retain a relationship with that which came before. Just Mm. like the makua, boys who become men, retain a relationship with their mothers as yes. their dear, as their dear sons. Mm-hmm. That's the argument that I'd like to develop in the course of my next project but that's going to require further fieldwork which I hope to get back to especially when a global conditions allow.
1: Right. Wow! Thank you, Devaka, for um, for sharing that. And those that sounds like a great plan. And I really love how you put returning back uh, to the field that you work. I think that challenges not only myself as a, a student, but also um, in my future research as well. You know, you got to appreciate um, not only just during your time at the research site, but also returning back. I think that that the way you put it and how you relate that to the rites of passage it's just wonderful thank you for putting it that way well,
2: thank you that. very much and thank you so much for the opportunity I, I really admire the project you've undertaken to, mm-hmm. to give a platform to the recent scholarship on mm-hmm. world Christianity and I know it's uh, it's a major time commitment on your part I can imagine so for, for all the work you've been doing it's a, it's a service that all of us uh, in the fields related mm-hmm. to world Christianity and in world Christianity all of us appreciate so thank you
1: Thank you. And also thank you everyone uh, so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Devaka Primawardana's book, Faith in Flux, Pentecostalism and Mobility in Rural Mozambique, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. And just to uh, uh, inform our readers, the paper book will be coming out in September of 2021 as well. Once again, thank you. This is your host, Byung Ho Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode of the new books on world Christianity.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring:
2: a laundry? Ooh, a book club!
0: Computer solitaire, huh?